All right. Well, beloved, um, it's good to be back doing some preaching today. I'm glad for, for one of the benefits of a plurality of elders is that we give each other a break from time to time. And so in the next couple of weeks, at least, I'll be uh, preaching. But, uh, you know, I, I am always ever more convicted that we are living in dangerous times. And if you want to think about it, it's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Um, but really, increasingly, the father of lies, who is the devil, Satan, is sowing confusion in the world. We see more confusion about things we used to take for granted, things that used to be certainties for most people. There's confusion in the world, whether it comes to how we identify ourselves as men and women and, and things like that. Never could fathom these kinds of questions 15, 20, 30 years ago. But he's also sowing confusion in a lot of churches, in a lot of minds, a lot of hearts of those who attend church on a regular basis. Um, not just about things like gender identity and things, but about who Jesus is. I mean, who is Jesus? Who are we with Jesus? How are we supposed to live in light of who Jesus is? You know, from Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we understand that we are made in the image of God. Male and female, He created us. We are all made in His image. But the devil, at least for a time, seems to be succeeding, and that time will come to an end. But he is succeeding in stirring up all sorts of false teaching, all sorts of false understanding and false living such that men and women seem content to create God in their own image. I'm going to follow God the way I want to follow God. I'm going to believe about God what I want to believe about God. And that can't be. Not if God has revealed Himself in His Word, which is the foundation of, of what we're about. So that's why beginning this morning... I want to take us on a journey through 1 John. Now, it's a short book, and you don't even need to turn there yet, because ironically, in this introduction to 1 John, we won't be in 1 John very much. But it's only five chapters long. I actually have had my fourth graders uh, memorizing chapter one of 1 John. They just finished it this week. Um, but the more I, I have been looking at it over the past few weeks and months, I have become convinced that you can answer almost any false teaching. You can answer almost any false understanding about Jesus from this book. You can uh, answer a majority, if not all, of the false notions about how we are to live as Christians from this book. Now, of course, there are specific answers to specific questions that we have to go elsewhere but if you want to, uh, to understand the big picture of who Jesus is and how we are to live in light of who Jesus is, then there is maybe not a better book than 1 John for us today. So this morning I want to set the stage for a line-by-line, verse-by-verse look at this book. And I want to prepare us, and to go on any journey, you do have to be prepared. So this morning I want us to look at the author of this letter, the man God, the Holy Spirit, used to speak to us, and that is, of course, John. Ironically, he doesn't name himself in this book, but uh, it is John. 
So today we'll look more at the Gospels and more at other books than, than this book itself. But it's going to stir us up for what I think will be a wonderful walk through this letter. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for this church. I thank You for the opportunity to proclaim Your Word. And I thank You for the opportunity to hear Your Word. Father, may Your people hear Your voice this morning and know You and follow You. May we worship You in spirit and in truth. May we examine ourselves to, as much as possible, walk in the, the, the grace and the knowledge of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Walk in the manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Father, I ask that You would penetrate our hearts, crush our pride, open our eyes, open our ears, that we might behold wonderful things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are introducing 1 John by introducing John. And some preliminary information about John. Because as much as we know about how he was one of the twelve apostles, maybe some of the details of his life can't be recalled as quickly. I just kind of want to fill in some gaps that might be there for us this morning. Of course, he was one of the twelve. We read in Luke, tw- uh, Luke 6, actually, how Jesus said, come follow me, and, and he did. And, you know, actually there's probably, if you, if you want to take Jesus, of course, and then Paul and Peter, maybe no more prominent name in the New Testament. Even so, he's kind of in the background a lot of times. If you read through the Gospel, almost every time John is referred to, it is with reference to being the brother of James. He had a brother named James. James was most likely the older brother. Um, He's almost always mentioned first. And in the Gospels, he is the more dominant of the brothers. In fact, the only time in the New Testament we see the relationship reversed where James is described as being the brother of John is when James is killed under the order of Herod in Acts chapter 12. Every other time, it's John the brother of James. So yes, they were brothers. You probably recall, maybe not off the top of your head, but they were sons of a man named Zebedee. So you know, if you ever want to name your firstborn something that no one else will, Zebedee's a good one to go with. So uh, Zebedee. His mother, you probably don't recall as easily, but she's actually a pretty substantial woman in the Gospels. Her name was Salome. And she was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. You could argue that she was a more devout follower of Jesus Christ during the ministry of Jesus than maybe James and John themselves because she was one of the last women at the cross. She was one of the first women to the empty tomb. Um, And she had a big role in the lives of her sons, Salome. The brothers were also fishermen, along with Peter and Andrew. We, We know that. But more than that, they were kindred spirits. You know, sometimes... Brothers can have such diverse personalities and it can cause friction in their relationships. Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I can identify with that. Um, having just family, my brother and I, we get along now, but when we, we were growing up, we were like oil and water sometimes. And my mother would be like, how could they be so different? Well, John and James were, were not so different. They shared a personality trait. And that personality trait can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. But they shared a personality trait for boldness. 
and sometimes immaturity. So much so that Jesus nicknamed them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. It sounds like a tag team in wrestling, the sons of thunder. But John and James, James and John, they were the sons of thunder. And John, so James and John, they were strong, they were thunderous, they were bold, but they were very imperfect. They were sometimes very intolerant, ambitious, explosive, and that's how they rolled. But God has chosen to work in and through imperfect people before. He's choosing to do so even now, to carry out His will upon the earth. You know, the apostles, they don't really belong in stained glass. They don't belong in pictures with the halos over their head like a lot of medieval art depicts religious uh, people. They were us, and we are them. They are sinners, they were sinners, we are sinners, but God saves sinners. God saves unqualified, ungodly people who hate Him in spite of the fact that they are His enemies, in spite of their flaws, in spite of their imperfections, in spite of their failure. And He uses people like that to bring glory to His name because He can, because He's God. And Jesus took John and made him into the man who would be part of His inner circle, who would play a major role in the the early church, who would outlive all of the other apostles and be a senior leader in the body of Christ late in the first century, perhaps even early into the second century. And God would use this man to pen five books in what we call the New Testament. So how would he get, how would he get to that point? Well, that too was a journey. We're starting a journey. John's road to being this pillar of the church, as Paul called him, was a journey too. And we start with his suspect start. John had a very suspect start. And from his start, it's clear that even before John knew who Jesus was, he desired truth. Even before John knew who Jesus was, he desired truth. John had a passion for truth. You know, otherwise, you may not realize this, but John, before he was a disciple of Jesus, was a disciple of John the Baptist. Okay? In John 1, we meet him. And even though in the Gospel he, he never names himself, it's John who is a, a disciple of John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And it's John 1.35. John and Andrew are standing with John the Baptist. When Jesus walks up, and those famous words out of John the Baptist's mouth are, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, John was following John the Baptist who points to Jesus to show him that, that he, this man, is the Messiah. And from that point on, John wants to follow the Messiah. He says, you know, you need to follow him. John the Baptist is basically communicating. And later on, back in Galilee, he was in boats with James, as I've already alluded to, when and Peter and Andrew were there, and Jesus says, follow me, and he gets up and he follows Jesus. So John had a passion for truth. And any time there's a passion for truth, that is to be commended. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person who identifies with Jesus Christ who shouldn't be absolutely passionate about the truth. You know why? Because Jesus is the truth. God is a God of truth. And so it's to be commended 
that John, the son of Zebedee, was passionate about the truth. But it's also important to note that John's quickness to follow Jesus was mitigated by a slow learning curve. If you got your Bible, turn it to Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, there is this incident that happens. And I'm going to start in verse 46 that says, An argument started among them, and the them are the twelve. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Which of the disciples might be the greatest. Now this was a running debate for them. This wasn't just a one-time thing. But particularly James and John seemed to be involved in this. Although they were passionate about the truth, they also had a, an ambitious streak in them. Uh, maybe you might even call it a glory-seeking streak more than the other disciples. It got so bad that it appears they put their mother Salome up to asking Jesus if they could have thrones at Jesus' right and left in his kingdom. Now, in Luke 9, we're not told specifically that James and John were at the forefront of this particular episode in this long-running debate. But, they were there. They were a part of it. Which is particularly appalling. Because if you consider what happened right before this, Peter and James and John saw Jesus glorified before their eyes at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and only them, up onto this hill, this mountain, and before their eyes, He was transfigured into basically a preview of what we will see Him as in glory. And Moses and Elijah were there as well. Well-known story. It's, in, it's right before this. You can also read about it in Matthew chapter 17. But you would think that if there was any event in the ministry of Jesus that would compel you to humble yourself, it would be the transfiguration. But apparently not for John. And Jesus knew that. That's how people who are sinners are. That's how we all are. We can be all inspired by the glory of God in one minute and turn around and turn resort to pride in the very next minute. We are prone to wander, as the hymn says. Prone to leave the God we love. And that was John. So Jesus responds in verses 47 and 48. He says this, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood, beside, stood him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So what Jesus is saying to John and to James and to the other ten who were there in this glory-seeking moment was that if you want to be great, you need to make yourself small. If you want to be big, you need to humble your heart. You need to, if you want to please the Lord, you need to humble yourself. You need to do and be willing to do with cheerfulness and gladness the mundane things. You need to be prepared to do the dirty work. And you need to do it with a thankful heart. Make yourself like a child. And when you serve Jesus, 
with no agenda, that's when you're showing you have received the one whom God has sent. And that's what Jesus is saying here. But again, John had a long learning curve. So verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. Now, considering what John became, if you've ever had trouble overcoming a sin in your life, you should be encouraged by John because Jesus told him and the others to become humble, and John just doesn't get the message. He's a bit hard-headed like me. Okay? Not yet, at least. He didn't get it yet. And, and, and this is the only time, by the way, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, we see John alone saying or doing something. And, and this isn't good what he says. Okay? He says, Master, or, or as Mark records it, Teacher, the irony here is that John seems to be wanting to teach Jesus something. This someone John referred to would appear to be somebody who was a legitimate, faithful, believing follower of Jesus, just not one of the twelve. And he's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and it would appear it wasn't for show. There's no indication here that he was doing it like, like we see a lot of the... The, the goobers on, on some religious television, you know, doing it for their name, doing it to try to get money and, and things like that. The guy John referred to here seems to have been earnestly serving the Lord, being used by God for great things. But John's problem was that this someone wasn't one of them. And that's why we don't criticize, you know, John was bringing up earlier in, in prayer with this other church that had this thing where, where people got saved. No, we're not in competition with anyone. Otherwise, we'd be just as guilty as John here. Somebody who wasn't one of them was doing something great for God. He was a follower of Christ, but not one of them. So John's problem is that he was narrow-minded. He was sectarian. He, he couldn't fathom how it could be a good thing to do the work of God and not be with them in their little group. Sometimes we, we have that problem today. You know, tragically, there are some in the world who call themselves Christians who have problems with Christians who don't look like them or don't talk like them or don't, have, don't dress like them or don't sing like them or don't eat like them or don't whatever. Fill in the blank. Satan's trying to divide the body of Christ, beloved. You know, I, I've taken like a three-week hiatus from... from from social media because of it. I just got so discouraged by some of the division I'm seeing in the body of Christ. And I was thinking on the drive over here, maybe it's time to get back. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. But I've been so discouraged lately by, by different ways I see Satan trying to divide the body of Christ. And that's what John was unknowingly falling prey to here. His zeal for the truth was mangled into being more narrow than the truth itself. It's right to be right. It's right to do right. It's right to have strong convictions. I wish more had strong convictions. So many Christians seem to be so wishy-washy with what's right and what's wrong when the Bible is so clear about so many things. It's right to correct those who are wrong. It's right to correct those who are in error. We're not obeying Titus 1.9 if we don't to hold fast to the truth and refute those who contradict. But we can never allow our passions and preferences 
to make us more narrow than the Bible itself. And that's what John was doing here. When we do that, it's pride, it's envy, and that has no place among God's people. Just ask Korah in Korah's rebellion with Moses. Okay? Go back and read that if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about. So, so Jesus corrected John in Luke 50. He says, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. He who is not against you is for you. you, know, you know, if Peter was like the, the quarterback of the apostles, then, then John was that little kid who's so excited to play, he tries tackling his own team members. You know? And Jesus is basically coming up to his to to him and saying, "Little fella, don't tackle your own teammates. Don't tackle your own teammates. We can't be those who take one another down, especially when we're called to love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." And I could go on and on and on. In fact, we did that back in December, I think, when we were meeting at my house one day. All those one another's in the New Testament. We can't do that if we're tearing one another down. We are one body with many members and no sane person uses one part of his body like his fist to beat himself in the head. Likewise, to avoid John's error, we can't tear other people down and other people's work down in the body of Christ. Now, we do have to measure it by what the Bible says. But we can't go around just tearing people down. Don't tackle your own teammates. And you would think John would have learned that, but you'd be wrong. Because in the very next verses in Luke 9, James and John want to call down fire upon the Samaritans. So, again, a long learning curve for John. But if you ever struggle with messing up time to time, time after time, which really all of us could, could, are guilty of, then I take comfort in the life of John. His thunder was out of control. He was zealous for Jesus, yes, but he was out of control. And his thunder didn't need to be taken away. It just needed to be tempered by love. It's a very dangerous thing. And sometimes I have to ask myself, am I guilty here? It's a very dangerous thing to be one of those people who emphasizes the love of God to the point truth is forsaken. Because when truth is forsaken, the love of God becomes adulterated. It becomes mangled. It becomes, it, it becomes twisted so much that it's not really love. In fact, it's never true love when it, there's not truth. And tragically, we see this all over the place today. That, that's, that brand of Christianity is really sub-Christianity. So prevalent. But this is the part I'm, I, I feel I'm more guilty of sometimes. It's equally dangerous to cling so tightly to truth, or think we are, that love is suffocated. And that's where John's problem was. Yes, we cling tightly to truth, but not so much that we're strangling ourselves from loving others. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We don't soften on truth, but we've got to leave room for love. Thankfully, God was in control. Jesus knew what He was doing. And so, 
we begin to see a change in John's life after that suspect start. We begin to see this kind of middle maturation. I'm using some alliteration today, folks. Middle maturation. Every word of the Bible, including each of the Gospels, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But they all have their own character as well. Matthew has a certain character about it. The book of Matthew is really Jewish-focused. I mean, it really is. It quotes the Old Testament more than any other Gospel. All the other ones combined, I think. Mark is a, Jesus did this, and then immediately He did this, and then immediately He did this. It's an action, I mean, if you want an action movie of Jesus' life, John, uh, Mark is the way, place to go. Luke is, is a, a chronological, you know, it's, you know, Luke is systematically setting forth who Jesus is, and then John's a whole other thing. We probably see the clearest in John, the Gospel of John, about Jesus, Jesus and John's maturation here in Jesus. In 13 through 17, those chapters, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples the night before his death. And John gives us more of what happened there than any other gospel. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is it's really in the upper room where we see John changed. Let's turn to John 13. And I'm using a relatively new Bible here, and so I've got to get there myself. But in John 13, it's the night before the cross. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And this shocks the disciples. I mean, they start looking around at one another, wondering who it is. But that's not all. Look at verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. Now keep on. So Simon Peter gestured to Him and said to Him, Tell us... who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And of course, Jesus does give the morsel to, to Judas, but the picture painted here is one of Jesus foretelling his betrayal and the disciples being broken by this news. John is the disciple on Jesus' bosom. Why? Because it appears he is so broken by the idea that the Lord will be betrayed. He's so humbled that one of them could possibly do this that he basically breaks down right on the body of Jesus. Have you ever done that with another? I mean, you're so broken you just bury your head into them. Crying, asking why, how, what now. That was John here. He'd been so arrogant as to be offended by someone other than the twelve doing ministry, but now he's crushed at the thought of one of the twelve ending Jesus' ministry. John's thunder has been humbled, and it's important to note the degree to which Jesus in the preceding verses speaks of love. Go back and read John 13 and, 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 and you'll be humbled by it. John records Jesus' words about love more than anyone else. This apostle who was so unloving toward the Samaritans now gives us the words of Jesus. Verses 34 and 35. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15, verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 17, This I command you, that you love one another. Do you see a pattern here? John's thunder for the truth had become thunder for truth and love. John's thunder had matured, so to speak, so much so that we see something remarkable while Jesus is on the cross in John 19. If you'll just flip a few pages in your Bibles to John 19. I was sharing with my fourth graders were reading through the Gospel of Matthew in, in my fourth grade class. And we came to that part where Jesus is teaching and someone comes up to Him and says, Hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And He says, The one who does the will of God. And you know, who are my, my mother and my brothers and my sisters? The people who are doing the will of God. Well, let's, let's think about that when we read this. Look at verses six, uh, 26 and 27. 26 and 27. Jesus is dying on the cross here. He's on the cross. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, Jesus knows he's about to die, and when people know they're about to die, they start, what's the phrase? Setting their affairs in order. Now, Jesus was the oldest, of course, of his brothers and sisters. It was his responsibility. Joseph, his adoptive father, had most likely died some time before this. If faced with death, would you trust your mother's care to someone who was immature and unbalanced? Of course you wouldn't. And neither did Jesus. John had learned the lessons he needed to learn, and Jesus knew it, otherwise he wouldn't have entrusted her care to John. And after all, Jesus did have brothers, remember? James writes the book of James later on. But James wasn't a believer. Not until after the resurrection. Joseph, the man who took care of Jesus as his earthly father, again, dead. So here Jesus leaves his mother not in the care of blood relatives, not in the care of James, not in the care of Jude, not in the care of sisters, but in the care of his spiritual brother, John. And there are several witnesses from early church history which attest to the fact that John did not leave Jerusalem until Jesus' mother Mary had died. 
So Jesus loved John, and because of that, John loved Jesus and learned to love others as well, even taking care of Jesus' mother after his death and after his resurrection and after his ascension, by the way. And that leads us to the third thing I want you to see. Again, with the alliteration, we've got the stumbling start, the middle maturation. How about a fruitful finish? We should all want to finish strong. I hate to keep bringing my fourth grade class into this, but they're going crazy because they know the school year's about to end. And I keep saying, finish strong. Finish strong. Some of them, not so much, but uh, God bless them. When the Holy Spirit came upon believers on the day of Pentecost, and Peter stood up and he preached that sermon in Acts 2. It was right after that in Acts 4 we see John standing up for the faith with Peter in front of the Sanhedrin. And that was the religious ruling council of the Jews. Okay, They made a stand for the gospel at the risk of their lives. And we read in Acts 4.13, Now as they, the Sanhedrin, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. So John's thunder might have matured, but it certainly didn't diminish. He's boldly proclaiming the gospel after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And John becomes very closely associated with Peter in the book of Acts. The last we hear about him, he's going with Peter to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 to investigate that the Samaritans had begun believing in the gospel through the preaching of of Philip. So John's reputation is huge. And his leadership in the early church is huge. And it's even so big that Paul talks about he, along with Peter and James, being pillars in the church. And that's the last we read about John. Of John. But that's obviously not the last we hear from John. Some of you might not know that it's generally thought that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written in the 50s and 60s, which puts them 15 to 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. John, it is thought, is written at least 50 years later. In 85, sometime between 85 and even going into the early 2nd century, 105. Sometime in that 85 to 105 range. So, John lives a long time, and, and he it's thought that what he wrote is, is written much later. All of John's writings are that old. He lives to very late in the first century, perhaps even early in the second. All of the other apostles and many other believers had by now been killed, died for their faith. You know, John's the only one. In, in according to church history, church tradition, that doesn't suffer a martyr's death. That's not to say his life was easy. But he's the only one left. He's the last man standing, so to speak. He pastors the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul founded, started. And as the last living apostle, he becomes sort of this patriarch, this uh, senior leader in the first century church. And that adds a certain weight to what we're going to be reading in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John about truth and love. In fact, of the writings of John, we have, uh, in the writings we have, the Greek word for truth appears 45 times 
And the word for love appears 80 times. Let me just read to you a little bit from 2 John. He, he begins 2 John saying, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as I have received commandment to do so from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. So, truth, love, truth, love, truth, love, truth, love, all over the place there. To love is to walk in His commandments, which are the Word of God. Third John 4, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. And as we get into 1 John, what we're going to see is a sharp distinction between those who walk in the truth and those who do not. The narrow road that Jesus talks about is defined in the book of 1 John. You either have the love of the Father or you do not. There is no in-between. You are either of your Father who is in heaven or you are of your Father the devil. There is no in-between. You are either in light or you are in darkness. There is no in-between. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1.6 The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. 1 John 2.4 The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 1 John 2.10 and then maybe some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. The ultimate demonstration of love is found in Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Even this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the, the wrath absorber for our sins. So beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. John was a thundering voice for truth and love. And while he did outlive all of the other apostles, he did pay the price. He did pay a, a steep price. The Roman Empire decided that the voice of Christianity had become too loud. And so they took John away and tried to hide him on an island called Patmos, a prison colony of Rome. And there he would be in exile to try to silence him. But that was God's plan. Because while he was there, he had time to write. So the last apostle standing, still a thunder, a son of thunder, still trumpeting truth and love, Jesus chose to give his last revelation to John. John received the privilege of revealing the ultimate truth. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Bringing about the ultimate fulfillment of God's love for His people. John got to be the one to write this. After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, 
Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous for He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, who you who fear Him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And if that's not enough, then he got to write this. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So John may have stumbled at the start and needed some maturing in the middle, but what a fruitful finish. And the bottom line this, this, this morning, beloved, is you don't know when your finish will be. You don't even know if you'll have a time of middle maturation. You don't know when your finish will be. So will you use your time that you have, that you know you have, stumbling around? Or will you use it being fruitful for the kingdom? The blessings of Revelation are for those whom God has saved. As we go through 1 John, we will see it's those who live out the truth who are in the love of God. I didn't read the part of Revelation that John wrote about the great white throne judgment, but you don't want to be there. It's for all sinners for all time who have not given their lives to Christ. Who's... Son gave His life on the cross. God gave, God's Son gave His life on the cross. And they will be judged rightly and justly for their sins. And they will, according to Paul, pay the penalty of eternal destruction. You don't have to be there though. You can be among those saying, Hallelujah for the Lord God our mighty, Almighty reigns. It is John who tells us that God loved the world in this way. He gave His only begotten Son that everyone believing in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is His commandment, 1 John 3.23 says, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. It's John who records Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus in John is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. His sheep hear his voice, and they know him, and they follow him, and he gives eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. It's John who writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and Jesus is that Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He's the Son of God. He's equal with the Father. And yet He subordinated Himself not in, 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 in power, not in might, not in eternal being of God, but in His role. He subordinated Himself to the Father's will on earth so that we could be with Him forever. And at the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus promises John he will live a long life and that nothing compared to eternal life. But, but, but I should say that's nothing compared to eternal life. And so I'll just close with this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe the truth? Are you walking in the truth? Are you believing Jesus to the point you actually obey His commands? And if you have this life, I'll close with 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You have an opportunity today to know that love. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only way. And God knows if you're playing games with Him. God knows if you're professing but not confessing in your heart. He knows the difference. And so I come to you today with the authority of the Word of God behind me to say... Come to Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, may we be fruitful to the finish. And may we thunder with truth and love for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for choosing John to follow Your Son and using John to edify Christ's church. And I pray for this church as we begin to walk through the book of 1 John that you might use it to build up your people for your glory. We must be a people, Father, who walk in your love. We must be also a people who walk in your truth. So I pray, Father, that you might compel us to live and walk in both. And I pray for anyone here today, Father, who doesn't today trust in you like this if there's anyone here father who may profess you but not truly know you i pray in the words of jesus in john 3 3 that they might be born from above so as to see the kingdom of god may you reign among us father through your son jesus christ in whose name we ask these things amen